picture, if you will, you've just finished watching your favorite episode of Three's Company. Your friends are calling. You've decided you're going to go out, maybe catch Alien. It's a hot movie. You hop into your AMC Hornet, crank it over, boom, YMCA, blasting on the stereo. You don't want to listen to that shit. You switch the channel, my Sharona. Finally, you're in heaven. This is Oh Man Rolling Dice. Good evening, everybody. It's Jason from Old Man Rolling Dice, and I'm here today with my my best friend and my partner in crime, Jeremy, and our good friend, DM Devin. How are you doing tonight, boys? I'm doing all right. I feel bad for calling you Jiminy Cricket now. You you, you called me your best friend. I'm kind of touched. I'm all It's a Queen reference. I know you love Queen. I do. And what the fuck are you doing driving an AMC Hornet? <laughs> I had an AMC Hornet. <laughs> Sunshine orange on the top, wood paneling on the bottom. I also had a girlfriend who refused to drive anywhere in said car because it was quote unquote fucking ugly. <laughs> oh, jeez. Not so, in 1979, so, obviously. So many but. 1979 references. What could we possibly t- be talking about? I, it was such a banner year. I mean, when you think about all the great stuff that came out in 79, and yet if you were in the gaming world, there was a couple real gems dropped in 1979. One of those in particular is going to be the topic for this evening. A little piece of uh, TSR nostalgia known as White Plume Mountain. We brought in Devin because Devin has made himself an expert on White Plume Mountain. <laughs> uh, and uh, has recently run it on uh, on Six Sides of Gaming, which is a Twitch uh, channel. Mm-hmm. If you haven't checked them out, please go and check them out. We have rated them. We've jumped across to Six Sides. It's recorded out of the round table right yeah to guelph yeah in guelph yeah also that's a bit of a drive for you to jump over there I, a little bit but you know do it, they have a fun. store in kitchener though they do Water which room. actually they have so they have a store in kitchener it's just reopened uh okay. the waterloo one is still closed okay okay but the guelph one is open oh yeah it's been open for a bit but oh, it's that- also the largest and it has the most going on yeah you and you guys stream out of that one there's a lot going on at Six Sides of Gaming as far as streaming goes. Like, there's a lot of shows. There's, uh, you're in a Shadowrun game there, aren't you? I am. As, uh, that's sick. That's that's a heck of a game, I'll tell you. There's lightning in a bottle. That one. We 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 can't explain it, but it's it's just a banger. I'm gonna tell you something. I think it's interesting that like it doesn't matter what you guys are running over there. Everybody's always in costume. So that's partly my fault. Um, <laughs> I mean, this kind of goes back a bit, but basically. I, whenever I would run a game for any of the people who are involved with Six Sides, I would always wear an outfit mm-hmm. as, as the DM. They really liked that idea, and so they started doing that too. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tommy, who is kind of one of the big guys there, he uh, used to work for film companies, so he has like a bunch of old costuming stuff that he owns. Okay. And then I have a bunch of stuff, because I do, I do a lot of cosplay, and then my mom also does a lot of uh, children's shows with outfits and things. So we just, between the two of us, we have like, a Mr. Dress-Up level closet. So I just brought all the costume stuff I own over to the set. And now just in between me and Tom, we've just, everybody's got an outfit now. That's all right. What was Mr. Dress-Up's, tr- t- the tickle trunk? The tickle trunk, yeah. Which sounds like it should maybe not be a child show. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> it was 1979. It was a more innocent time. There's no question about that. We're just going to cool. jump right in there. Why White Plume Mountain? There's a lot of modules that you you got you could have ran, but why White Plume? 
I mean, to be honest, it's because it was it seemed the most up my alley because I was looking through. We wanted to run something from Yawning Portal. So I was looking through the different ones. I didn't want to run something super low level. I wanted to to have it sort of be a higher level adventure because then it would be a little more exciting because right out, we're, we're starting Candlekeep now and that starts at level one. So we didn't want to just do two level ones in a row. Absolutely. And I thought about running Hidden Shrine of Tomoachen, but I am definitely not knowledgeable enough to run that to a level that I would be satisfied with. I'd have to do a lot of research on uh, the Aztec, Toltecs and Incas and all that stuff to really be comfortable being able to pronounce all the names and and have proper descriptions of everything. So I didn't really want to do that one. So I, I, have, with... I have ran that one. I did not do very much research. I just ran it as what I read. It still had a good feel. It was still a very fun adventure. I mean, it looked like a good dungeon. I uh, don't like White Plume, though. It's very, it, it has a very old school feel. It does. Well, I kind of came out around kind of the same era. It was that same mm -hmm. uh, type of, because there, there's a couple of adventures in Yawning Portal Letter from some of the newer editions. Yeah, third edition. Uh, like, uh, yeah. Sunless Citadel. White Plume can almost be done in a one shot. If, if you have the right, the right group makeup and everybody's focused i think you could almost get this done in one a single a single session i i mean I would, I would agree and that's part of the reason why i went with this one was because we we didn't we had a specific amount of time we wanted to fill and i thought that this would be a good one to do um but i also did a bit of sort of uh pre-reading on a couple of them and this is the one that just it just grabbed me and so i was immediately like this is the one i'm going to do I figured I should get as much research into it as I can because when I want to run, it, it's kind of funny because the idea of running a module is that it it's less work for you as a DM. <laughs> and then I decided to just go ahead and read every single reference to White Plume Mountain that's ever been written <laughs> by anything yeah. official. And it's been around for so long that it is one of these modules. I mean, there was it's it, it was a first edition module written as a first edition module. It then has a second edition, correct me if I'm wrong, second edition Return to White Plume Mountain. Yep, that was in 1999. Does it have a third edition iteration of itself? So this is where it gets interesting. And and this is kind of why, when going in, I, I, I didn't really know White Plume Mountain, but mm -hmm. the more I read about it, the more I, I just really started to get into it uh, and the story behind it. It was written by Lawrence Schick, uh, he wrote it as a basically a sort of like a resume to send to Gary Gygax as a please hire me. And then they published it. What's funny about it, though, is what he did is he he basically just looked at. See, and this is why it, it spoke to me is because this is very much what I do. He took all of the puzzles he had ever invented for all these different games he had run and just smooshed them all into one dungeon and then wrote a sort of a story around it and then sent that off. And he was expecting them to do some editing and to go through and reform. No, they published was, it as he gonna, wrote it. I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong. He had actually hoped that if they were going to publish that, that he would have an opportunity to touch it up. Mm -hmm. He was. He, he sent he it did, in. He didn't. Yeah, he, just, yeah, he, he sent it in as like a, here's what I can do. Like sort of like a cover letter kind of deal. Yeah. And they, they liked it. They just, they just published it as, as is. And they hired him. If only it was that easy these days. <laughs> Different times, right? Different yeah. Times you have, you so, have a but yeah, he sort of uh, struggling at first, and they they get a submission with like it, it's a creative adventure. I'll give it that. If you compare it to like Gygax's Hill Giant Steading 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 against the Giants against the Giants, I started with the Hill Giants and then the 
frost giants and the fire giants those are really just uh murder hobo kick down the door fight the monsters i've i've ran against the giants so many times it's another uh, love affair i have with the game is that set of modules but i can tell you my most recent running in fifth edition people did not get the same enjoyment i did out of it because it, <laughs> it does not have the story elements i would have I, I had a little bit of a story running it was part of an overarching campaign and i think white plume mountain suffers from sort of the similar problem is that does not have a strong story do you think that that's got a lot to do with just how the gaming arc has changed over the years right like in 1979 that was the type of game that was hitting the table. And in the last couple of years, I mean, story and character and narrative driven uh, adventures have become like sort of the standard. I mean, even even heavy dungeon crawls and stuff don't seem to be as prevalent today as they were maybe back then. No, no. they are. But I'd say they're more uh, you get like the mega dungeon or you get the thing where it's it's more of a theme. They try to make it make sense these days. The nice thing about these older ones is th there was a story, but it was basically like, is just to explain why you were there. I don't think White Blue Mountain was run as a tournament adventure. Am I wrong? I'm not sure. I it thought was, the S series was. I wasn't sure, though. It was, I know it was run at conventions. It may have been run as, as a tournament. I'm not 100% on that. Back in this uh, time, there was, a, there was a thing called Competitive Dungeons & Dragons, where... Tomoe Chan is an example of that, where there are certain point objectives throughout the dungeon, and you were running, your party was trying to prove they were the better party. So, which is interesting because it's hard to be competitive when you're not on the same playing field, because with each dungeon master, you're on a very different playing field. However, they, they were run, they, there was sort of a competitive Dungeons and Dragons circuit at these conventions that, uh, that you could play in. But, but before we get too far into, like, I think we're about to stray into our next sort of bracket. Let's get back to, so did it have a third edition iteration? Right. So it, uh, it did not have a, like an, a, an edition, third edition, because like the second edition was a sequel, mm -hmm. but they did re-release it for third edition um, as White Plume Mountain Revised, which they had, uh, Lawrence Schick actually did help with that. And they kind of took stuff from the, they took the first one, the, the original, and they actually did a lot of changes. And then they also took stuff from the sequel and they kind of just put that in as a web exclusive, uh, which was mm -hmm. the, new, the new thing. Uh, you could yes. go get stuff from the internet. And yeah. uh, they added that in there so you could get a few extra things that way. The third edition one is, is interesting because people talk about how, like fifth edition especially is uh, very loot it's not loot driven. It's, it's sort of a minor when it comes to loot. So people always talk about like first and second edition, how they were constantly giving you all this loot. Well, I, let me tell you, the third edition White Plume Mountain is a bunch of pinatas. They give you so much stuff in that. They give you way more than the original does. Um, it's also arguably harder in some rooms. They actually, uh, they changed up a few of the ways some of the rooms work and made them deadlier, if you can believe it. Well, with the introduction of skill checks in third edition, you now have a new level of dice rolling chance to fail. Whereas in first edition, you didn't have that. Is there a fourth edition version? As far as I'm aware, nothing was released for fourth edition. It, it, it kind of dropped off after the third edition revised. Now, before the third edition, there were something added in one of the dragon magazines as well as one of the dungeon magazines had a spinoff 
which I'll I'll use I use the word spinoff. It's very loosely ba- it's it's very loosely connected. It's it's part of the overall story. But I mean, I read I the whole s- thing. I want to say that there was also they did that with some other old school modules during fourth edition in Dungeon Magazine. They uh, I think it was. Tomb of Horrors. I think they did a Tomb of Horrors version. Well, they also released Tomb of Horrors for third edition, if I recall. I think I remember seeing it yeah, on, a, on a shelf when I was a kid. <laughs> you, <laughs> might, you, might, you might be right. You might be right. And then, yeah, it, it basically uh, it didn't really do much until fifth edition when they re-released it for Yawning Portal. Mm-hmm. And then when they did that, they also released a... And this is where it gets kind of weird for me. They released uh, for the Adventurers League for the Yawning Portal season. They had two adventures in the Adventurers League, which were sequels to the sequel. Oh. It fully takes the ending from the sequel from second edition and is it explains that and then start, says this leads into the plot here in this way, which I find just really strange because I'm thinking, you know, most people running Adventurers League probably have no idea. But because this White Plume Mountain is fairly well known the sequel is not mm. so it's very interesting they went with that so it, it kind of creates this sort of trilogy if you really wanted to run it that way you could and then of course we now have fifth edition as you said with the the yawning portal if people jump on youtube and they will find videos of people that just adore this module and i think the reason that this module is as well liked because it borders on the silly at times but the but the reason it's so well liked, I think, is because there's sort of a shared experience happening. It doesn't matter what age of gaming you came out of, there is a chance that you've played White Plume Mountain. So there's a chance that you know about the magic items. There's a chance that you, because there's three big magic items uh, for those that don't know. So and the, and I think they're constant across all the versions. Yeah, they are. The only the only time they don't show up is in the spinoff and in the Adventurers League stuff because yeah. that would be broken if they put it in the Adventurers League. So I mean, it's an opportunity for like someone who someone who just joined Fifth Edition and has had their DM run some of the Yawning Portal. Maybe they've run White White Plume Mountain, and then you could have an old grognard could also have played the, like the original and can then compare notes. A lot of the rooms although there's different mechanics for dealing with the rooms, they're the same rooms. Like they I mean, haven't I, been changed that much. I mean, I will say having read through the original first edition and the fifth edition, they're almost word for word identical. Mm-hmm. They only, as far as I'm aware, the only real change is one piece of loot, which they changed from a potion of silver dragon control to like a scroll of flying or something. Because I, I can't exist do they they don't and it's such a niche item has <laughs> no bearing on the rest of the adventure i guess they just decided to remove that and i believe that's the only actual change because like right down to the way things are described and the the way everything which which kind of makes it a weird read for someone who is if you're if you've just got into D through fifth edition reading through it's going to be a little weird because it's not going to be structured the way you're normally used to them being structured or explained in the way there's a, there's a part where it talks about <clears throat> this one aspect of a room and it's like, uh, and if someone does the thing to it, that is obviously dumb. That's not what it says, but if they were to do a thing, then it does say 
this happens and hopefully damages the idiot who did it. It's like, like actually has that in the text. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they literally copied the stuff from the first edition and just threw that into the fifth edition and that, then like that's or, formatted it a little bit. But I knew that the they had text. stayed true, but I didn't realize they'd almost like, like in some cases they'd gone word for word. I did not know that. I had, I was hard pressed to find any differences. Well, and uh, like there's mechanical differences though, I'm sure. I, I well, yeah, the, I mean, the, I the traps the original, and the stats and everything are all different. Yeah, I know in the original, some of the traps were just like, if the party has done this and has taken no precautions, then there is a 70% 70, 70 chance that the character here dies or like- it's, it's Yeah, like, there are some differences, not in the text, but of the context. Because the way first edition worked rules wise, certain rooms function differently yeah. than they would in fifth edition. In fifth edition, some of the traps are just an inconvenience. Whereas in first edition, there are stories of characters dying from them. Like that's how much of a difference it is. And that's simply because the rules have changed. The dungeon's exactly the same, but the rules surrounding how some of these mechanics would be deadly have altered so in that way there are some differences but it's not anything in the way that it's been written this type of a dungeon is affectionately called a funhouse dungeon and it's it's sort of just the style of play that comes when you're when you're in one of these some things don't make sense there's there's no logic to justify how a monster has survived where it survived like in fifth edition some of the modules like there's latrines there's kitchens there's all this like so you like you can sort of understand that a monster or a creature or an opponent is living down in this dungeon that this was not the case from old school funhouse uh dungeons this was like just this is what's in the room and you deal with it and there's certainly and i i think also another characteristic of funhouse dungeons is there's not really an epic story uh sort of arching across the whole thing uh there's just a, enough story to keep it together that you know you have a reason to be exploring whatever this dungeon whatever this dungeon is and i think they're sort of renowned for having a higher body count than what maybe players nowadays are used to yeah the newer versions of the game of the games adventures tend to try to follow more of a uh make sense um because in, in the olden days, it was kind of just a wizard did it. Yeah, you know, exactly. There, there were like all these horribly crazed, mad wizards going around making all these weird dungeons. That's that's actually the spinoff. It's explained, they're basically explained the whole premise is like, yeah, this guy went mad and now he's done this. And it's like, it's like and it's that's found, just how it all happens. It's found all over the place. Under Mountain is basically a mad wizard's invention. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tomb of horrors is essentially just the lich's playground to well he, he deliberately made that to yeah exactly exactly yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so and the the other thing i was thinking about when i when i was thinking about this uh the, the funhouse dungeons and white plume mountain has a couple of these i think in the older version and i and you can tell me if it's held this way i don't know that it has held this way to fifth edition but this is also sort of the difference between first edition adventuring and fifth edition adventuring so in first editions there were puzzles and puzzles were meant to be do you want to speak on this jason i know this is one of your favorite things about old school no this is actually i'm glad you brought it up because it was definitely one of the things i was going to talk about because i think this is actually referred to as like the pun 
the puzzle dungeon of puzzle dungeons, right? There's nothing it's the so, character sheet can do to to figure out the right, and especially in older editions, right? There was no skill check roll. This is the puzzle that's on the table in front of you. You and your friends sitting around the table have to now focus on that puzzle and figure it out. Yeah, you can't simply it. roll a die. You can't simply role play through it. It's like no, you know, why doesn't this door open? It you challenges know, the, the player as opposed right. to the character sheet, right? And that's something I, I agree is missing a lot sometimes. And I. And this is going to go off on a little rant or whatever. There's an immense sense of satisfaction when you're sitting at a table and you solve a puzzle. I mean, it's it's just as big a high, if not bigger, than getting that crit roll or you know having a really great role play session. There's something about going, holy crap, this story reached a point where it stopped progressing. Collectively, we solved something that didn't involve my 18 strength or. Uh, a great feet check with my arrows while I was jumping off a castle wall. We simply progressed the story through um, through the puzzle solving skill of the group. And it's really nice. I think it's a really good role-playing experience, but it's also a great experience for a group of players to sort of collaborate in that way. Back at you. Although I would say that, um, yeah, it, it is. But I would say that there is sort of a line because I think I think the reason you don't see it a lot in modern stuff is because it's kind of become this sort of taboo. It's like, oh, we don't want to we don't want to throw something at the players that then they just get stumped and then the whole game grinds to a halt because you're not challenging something sure, they can roll, right? That's the danger, right? You put in a puzzle. There's a, at one point in this module where a sphinx asks you a, a riddle, and if you don't solve the riddle, uh, I don't think you can progress. At least in the original, you couldn't. There was a some kind of a wall or there are there are ways but generally yeah yeah so if you can't figure out the riddle now the riddle i don't think is particularly challenging i i think My, the players people... on six sides got it after the second line <laughs> yeah yeah exactly there's lots of clues on what she's looking for for the answer uh it's not just a one yes or no uh, like as it as she with every line as you said it progresses it's obvious what she's talking about. I think sometimes DMs aren't willing to put a puzzle like that in because the players will say, that's so easy. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, I think you, you say the, that, but then like you throw something you think is easy at the players and then it takes them. And then they I, can't get it. Like I've had, I've had weird experiences because I, since we're talking about Funhouse dungeons, this is kind of my personal favorite thing to write as a DM. Mm -hmm. I like to make puzzle dungeons um and so i was running what i like about them is you create all these these puzzles and then you throw them at different groups of players and no two play groups of players ever use the same tactic to solve the puzzles and that's what i really like seeing is just seeing how different people solve different problems and that's that's where i get the enjoyment out of it and i i came up with one puzzle that i ran for a bunch of different people and one group solved it in 10 minutes one group solved it immediately. They walked in. I described the room. They're like, I know what to do. And they just did it. And another group, it took them half an hour. Yeah. yeah. And I thought it was a fairly simple puzzle. So would right. do you think, though, that in all cases, regardless of time, whether it was the group that got it quick or the group that got it after a half hour, like, did they all, do you think they all experienced some form of, uh, hey, we got that. Hey, like some form of accomplishment for having figured yes. it out. Yes. I I, I don't think it ever got to the point where they were getting frustrated. Um, but that's also because I'm keenly aware of that. So I'm constantly paying attention to say, okay, are they starting? And then you, you have to start maybe thinking, okay, 
maybe with the next thing they'll try, it just works. It, it they've spent enough time on it. We want to move on. I, I've done that with uh, with some really tricky ones where it was like you read a poem and then it was the key to figuring out how to do this. And so they tried it, I think, four or five different times. And I could see they were starting to get kind of like, okay, come on. And then I was like, okay, they, they were, I think, two off. So I was like, that's, that's close enough. So I let them get it. And then they were cheering and high-fiving and jumping out of their chair. They were very happy to have solved it. But I'm pretty sure had I told them that, no, actually, that didn't work, it, it would have gone in a very different direction. I feel like newer players, they're not always... When, when I put a puzzle out there that's not character character sheet driven, sometimes they're kind of like, what, what do we do with this? And I was even asked, I was even asked once after the game, they enjoyed the puzzle, but the player said to me, uh, you know, my wizard is much more intelligent than me. So I would like to think that my wizard could have figured out that puzzle. I wish I could have rolled to figure out the puzzle. And that that has always stuck with me but at the same time again drawing from another talk we had with a friend of ours uh, bill bill loves using puzzles and on table props and things and he has had similar situations where people are like well can't i just roll to do this and he has i like how he put it he was like you can to we if this becomes frustrating we can totally roll to have your characters move past it just to keep the game going but i promise you if you like if you struggle and figure this out it's going to feel like a hundred times better the game is going to be a, a hundred times better than if we just rolled a dice and i gave you the answer and i i like that approach it's it's like yeah if this is a stumper and like you said i need to give you a hint or something to move along then we can maybe relate to the dice. But if you guys can do this on your own, I promise you it's going to be worth it. Yeah, I'll do that if if they're starting to have a hard time and one of them's like, my wizard is 20 intelligence. I'll be like, okay, give me give me an intelligence check and I'll give you a hint. And then depending on how high you roll will depend on how good the hint will be. So if it's like a riddle, I'll try to like use words to kind of be like kind of lead them in the direction that i want them to go i've done that too i've been like well your wizard really thinks that the key is probably something to do with line three yes yeah something <laughs> like that yeah but but i agree that if if you can solve the puzzle you're gonna feel awesome the game is more fun to me if you're solving puzzles and it's sort of like like if D D has sort of like a a trinity it's like sort of like monster fighting i guess it could be more than this but monster fighting exploration and puzzles is sort of my trio that i like although i would argue you could have a monster fight also be a puzzle in a way yes you could like it's like a puzzle you solve with weapons <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> a puzzle could also go hand in hand with exploration true you know, just by just by uh, searching around dark corners and crawling under things that you maybe wouldn't normally crawl under, that could lead to the answer to the puzzle too. But I think the the key is to just be very well descriptive with what the players need to be aware of. Uh, if if you can't explain the context around the riddle enough, they may not understand what they need to do. This is actually a problem with in Natasha's book. They gave a bunch of example puzzles in the back, and a couple of them out of context can be could be quite difficult to solve 
you would need to add a little bit more uh, to, to make them make sense in a, in a setting so that they can figure out what the mechanics of the puzzle are. Because when you don't even understand what you're supposed to do to solve the puzzle, it, it, it just becomes, I mean, you have to complete a puzzle to figure out how to solve the puzzle. At that point, you're, it, it's, unless you're, you're dealing with veteran you know, engineers who are going to be thinking in a way that that makes <laughs> sense, like it's going to be a problem. Yeah. And in the end, it still comes back to, is everybody at the table having fun? And if they're mm -hmm. not having fun, then you need to adjust the puzzle so everybody is having fun. But I think, I think in many cases, if they solve the puzzle on their own, they're going to have lots of fun. It's going to be a highlight. Oh, absolutely. And something they remember. Like, oh, do you remember that stupid riddle? Or, oh, do you remember? We had to rotate those video? mirrors in the exactly. way. Yeah. Or we had to mix the potion. I recently watched. Oh, what's the one with the puppets? Stuff of Legends. And they had to mix potions, different colored potions to make new colors. And the new colors was what they needed to advance the plot. Uh, so they, you know, they needed a, uh, they needed a purple. So they needed to mix the red potion with the blue potion. And they, they needed a green. So they need to mix the blue potion with the yellow potion. And I thought, oh, that's a simple, that's a simple little thing that people can, uh, can get hold of and run with. And again, I feel like, Anytime the players feel like they figured it out themselves, they're going to be thinking the game is that much better. If I can, if I can just tell you my favorite ever puzzle that I've ever, I've ever done. It's, uh, it's, from the, it's from the Death Gate series of books. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but there was a PC game that came out based on them. Mm -hmm. And there's this one instance where you are imprisoned and poisoned. So you're, you're, you're chained up and poisoned and you're in a bad situation. You're going to die very quickly, but you have a spell that transfers your consciousness, which is consciousness with an animal. And there's a dog in the prison. So if you switch your consciousness with the dog, you can then have the dog run up the stairs of the, of the fortress to get to where the liquids are with the antidotes. And you know that the antidote is, I believe it's like a, it's a certain color. Okay. And you get up there with the dog and everything's black and white. And he's colorblind. Yeah, and, he's colorblind. And you have to figure out, and I, I believe if I recall, the antidote is clear. So it's the clear liquid, but you can't tell what's what because they all look clear because they're all mm -hmm. sort of some semi-transparent. And, and so you have to sit there and you have a limited time because you're, the poison is going to kill you. And you mm -hmm. have to figure out, you get like basically one shot and you have to look at it in black and white and based on everything you can see you have to figure out which is the correct potion and I, that that was that's probably the my favorite ever puzzle i've ever seen in anything because no, it was just so creative that's neat no, to take characters and put them in that sort of situation where like once again the, the stats on your sheet aren't aren't progressing the story you yourself are having to solve that issue it's something nice to add to the table different right everybody loves throwing their dice i would never take that out of the game and there's a lot of people that enjoy a good role play i'm just saying it's it's a nice sort of different uh a different sort of story arc or a different uh session to have when all of a sudden something like that hits the table if we say fun houses you know they they generally have puzzles traps they, they generally have traps that you have to work around there's not, no sense. there's not necessarily any sense that's made as to why things are where or where like their placement it's just kind of like this is what you you open the door and this is what's there now deal with it why do we think then because this is not the type of dungeon that's built anymore like you're not very few adventures from let's just use blizzards as the coast for example very few adventures that they published are funhouse dungeons i think maybe i haven't read it but maybe not entirely at least the dungeon of the mad mage, mad mage. 
Dungeon what? of the Mad Mage and Dead and Fey are the two more recent ones, which are they're basically just mega dungeons. So I, I don't know if I count them as much because they're more so like just but like a hundred and twenty room dungeon do you think or whatever. The funhouse dungeon then has polymorphed to use a D and D term, polymorphed into the mega dungeon. I think so. I, to be honest, I think with Wizards of the Coast stuff, they're trying to appeal to the largest uh, market. And puzzle dungeons, while I love them, I don't think a lot of the current audience, it, it's it, they're not really looking for that kind of thing to play. And obviously for them, they want to just be able to sell the book. I agree with you. I mean, I think I think that the reason, my, my question of why we don't see them is a little rhetorical. See, this is, this is interesting. Funhouse dungeons. I love them, but I'm not sure I would drop it in a Funhouse dungeon into the middle of a campaign that I was running because characters are probably going to die. Yeah, I I did create a Funhouse dungeon for one of the campaigns I ran just in my in my home with my friends, but that's how I started the campaign. Exactly. It was, like, it, was it was like a based around it. It was like a yeah, you all because it didn't matter whether they knew each other or not. They just like, you're all here. You're all trying to get into this dungeon to get the thing at the end of it. It was created by this crazy mad wizard. The entrance is a giant middle figure pointing to the sky. Go in there and do your thing. And then by the end of it, when you come out, you'll all be best buddies because you all survived this horrible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was, that was basically how I just brought the whole group together and threw them in. And it worked by the end of that dungeon, they were all friends and, and working together as a group. And they they didn't really work constantly. Like, why are we even together? What's our goal? They were all like, no, we got to stick together where we solve that dungeon. But I mean, even if you ran the box set, uh, Mines of Phandelver, you would not finish Mines of Phandelver and then drop them into hidden shrine of Tomochan. Oh God, no. Because someone's going to die. Like, yeah i mean the level of lethality between one and the other it's like someone's gonna die they're 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 it's a different it's a different mental space because white plume mountain especially very much expects you to have a 10-foot pole Um, and that was one of the enjoy that was one of the things uh, i saw uh because tom at six sides he's he's not he's not old but he's of the generation of second edition yes so he uh when we were talking about his character was was getting equipment and i was like uh you're probably gonna want a 10 foot pole and i just saw his eyes light up he's like 10 foot pole (laughs) i haven't had one of those we we discussed this recently because i i swear up and down like the cantrip mage hand literally replaced the 10 foot pole that's true actually yeah yeah because i but but there was no such thing as not for white plume no as i say not having a 10 foot pole how much pressure does the pole have to put in order to trigger the it's trap. It's not necessarily that. It's the, you it's don't know like, what might be attached sure. to the floor or... Or if there is a floor, if it's just an illusion. Right. Or, yep. yeah. So in a recent adventure that I ran with on my stream, actually, we're playing through Ghosts of Saltmarsh and there was a dungeon that they got into and it's sort of trap heavy towards the end. And they quite literally had found some long poles and they were using them as 10-foot poles tapping the ground looking for those looking for those traps i think there's probably some players out there that you said if you said the 10 foot pole thing it would just like right over the head they wouldn't know what the 10 foot pole was for i mean i i'm running a game out of the essentials kit Mm -hmm. and uh they get a collapse you get a collapsing a pole of collapsing fairly early in don't think they've used it once no they haven't even (laughs) They've never they needed to. It's like, what What would you use that for? Like, what would you... What, what, I think they've only ever that? used it to, like, 
grab at something that was far away or to like there was one point where they wanted to get something off of a statue that they thought was going to explode, which it was going to explode. <laughs> and they used the, uh, the pole to take it off and, and knock it. And so they thought it was it, going to explode. It absolutely was. It, it, and it did explode. <laughs> and they, uh, I gave them hints. And uh, <laughs> it, yeah, that was, it was maybe like one or two things they used it for, but they've never used it as you would use a, a 10 foot pole to like check all of the, the panels in front of you, the wall, the ceiling, take one step, check all the panels, the wall, the ceiling, take one step. Exactly. If there is, if there is a inexperienced DM listening right now, and this idea of a funhouse dungeon is something that makes you go, wow, I, I would love to run something like that. Run it as a one shot. Or like if there's a night where all your players can't make it, you know, have something prepared to run when you're, when you're short a couple of players. And I think they're a blast. If the people sitting down at the table know what they're in for, fun houses can also be called grinders, I suppose, in some ways. If they know it's it going to be that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a grinder, but I mean, I think lethality in madhouse, in fun, pardon me, fun house dungeons, there is, there is a certain level of lethality that's higher than, say, a regular story-driven adventure. So as long Which as they... probably as part of the reason knows, why the story is so weaker on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, because if you start to get invested in the story, then the DM's just a dick when he kills you. Like, <laughs> like when the trap when the trap just kills you. And if you're running this in an older edition of Dungeons and Dragons, not fifth, like there's some stuff where it's just you don't get a chance to. You get one roll, and if you fail it, you're dead. And that was just part of old school gaming. Oh, absolutely. That was why in first edition, like. Everybody else needed 2,000, 2,500 XP to advance. A, a, a thief, the old school rogue, needed 1,250 XP. Like you would, you would be two and three levels ahead of, but because the reality was you probably weren't making it every time. Every lock you picked, every trap you tried to disarm was literally a life and death there were, situation. There was also the henchman mechanic. I mean, oh, and you don't see that anymore either. It, the rules for it exist. You just don't see people doing it because everything's story-driven and yep. if you're the hero you're not going to push there there's something unwoke about pushing a poor person that's just there for a couple coins down the hall ahead of you so he falls in the trap and not you like, <laughs> which, which was a legitimate tactic back in the day <laughs> absolutely absolutely tomb we of horrors is kind of built around that actually it is it is i've seen people in tomb of horrors playing with henchmen that the first tunnel which is just trap infested they literally just like it's like a, the start of a sprint they line up their henchmen and just say run for that end wall and all the traps pits darts everything you know and the one that makes it to the end uh falls through the mouth of, of, of uh, annihilation <laughs> and and it's all over it's all over and we we actually played a sort we we, we occasionally one shot sword and wizardry stuff and we ran a sword and wizardry game where a guy made a character the only thing he had was a good charisma we did 3d6 as they came and he just loaded up on henchmen and he sat in a wagon and had the halflings pull him he was a halfling he was a halfling sorry and he had the henchmen pull him through the dungeon on the wagon and then he would just send like three or four henchmen you know with total disregard for the exactly go go check out the chest for me See if there's anything behind that statue. Could you knock on that door at the end of the hallway for me? <laughs> yeah. And essentially, I mean, it's like giving your character nine lines. It's, my henchmen are going to be able to make that many mistakes for me before I'm out of henchmen. At some point in time, you're going, 
how many villages can you roll into and go, I'm looking for 12 torchbearers? Like, eventually, the, the, the village is simply decimated. They're like, there is nobody left, right? <laughs> well, I think another aspect of it, too, is the strength of magic items. Because mm -hmm. in the older editions, you could get, like, a ring of fire resistance wasn't, like, half damage to all fire. It was like you maybe took 5% less. And then you could get a better one, which is, like, 15% less. Yeah. But now, ring of fire resistance is fire resistance you get you take half fire damage and i will tell you that one of the players in the uh white plume mountain that i ran at six sides is only alive because he had a ring of fire resistance there you go uh, but he had the fifth edition version of a ring of fire resistance if it was the older edition he probably well, still would not have made it back in the old school there was different levels of resistance there was an endure spell endure elements which gave you i think a bonus to your saving throw but but you still took damage normally then there was like fire resistance where you got an even better saving throw. It was maybe a plus four or something. I'm going back to first edition here. And then there was fire protection, which let you absorb a certain amount of damage from fire every day. And then once that absorption was done, you had to let the ring regenerate. There was different levels of resistance. Whereas now you're right. There's just one, you take half and you're good to go. You take half and you're good to go. Because there's one specific room where that ring was really helpful. <laughs> so let's let's I'm gonna give a warning to everyone now. Let's move on. Let's move on to some specific specifics of the dungeon. If you're a player that's looking to play White Plume Mountain, this might be a good spot to jump off the podcast. Uh, or if you're a, <laughs> uh, or if you you know if you think that you're gonna be playing through this and you don't want to play with there, there's going to be spoilers. That's what I'm getting at. There's going to be spoilers. I would also, before you run though, if you are one of these players that are leaving us now, uh, we are going to be one-shotting White Plume Mountain with Devin uh, on our podcast. We're going to put together a party of adventurers that are foolish enough to go into White Plume Mountain. I'm actually kind of hoping for a TPK on it. I can like, crank up the difficulty if you I, I want. Would, I would kind of like to see a TPK at some point. The, the, from here... What? what? Who goes he going? You know what would be great? You know what would make something awesome? <laughs> Everybody's dead. Oh my god, what a plot twist. Not not room one, not room one, but maybe like at some point in the, the adventure if everybody wipes. I mean, how awesome the, is that? The, the final battle is really hard. <laughs> there you go, there you go. See? Here's the thing. If I'm putting together a party of adventures, I don't want you in it. I don't want you in it. I'm like, huh? Like you're doing like interviews. So what do you plan to get on this dungeon? I hope we all fucking die. That would be grand. I mean, that would be a surprise nobody saw it coming. Dude, sorry, you didn't pass the interview. Okay, get the fuck okay. out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> wait, wait, stop. Whoa, you didn't think you were getting away that easy. Look for part two of this episode when we talk about spoilers of White Plume Mountain, and then we'll be following that up with our live play of White Plume Mountain, Old Men Rolling Dice style. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I can't wait to show you the live play. See you soon. Good night, Dick. <laughs>